Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's live episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McWivy. I'm your host, as always. This one was recorded live at Black Rabbit Mead just this last week with Brad Bynum from the band Elephant Rifle, as well as the former editor of the Reno News and Review, and one of Reno's original trivia hosts way back in the day at Sierra Tap House. So we talked about all those things, about working in a band, having a musical background, touring, representing Reno on the road. We talked about independent media, the role of the alt-weekly newspaper, how to attract more bands to Reno, tons of stuff. Really, really great. And we had a fun audience. We also got to interact with some folks in our audience. Shout out how much we love our mothers for Mother's Day. This episode will be out on Mother's Day. I hope you enjoy. We do these live episodes about once a month at Black Rabbit Mead, so keep an eye on my social media. That's at Renoites on Instagram to see who our next guests will be. If you have suggestions for guests or episode topics, please let me know. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And tell your friends to listen to the show. It's really great doing the show, and I hope more people can find and enjoy it. You can help with that by just spreading the word. Tell your friends, share posts on social media. I really, really appreciate it. And now, recorded live at Black Rabbit Mead in the Brewery District, it's Brad Bynum. Welcome to Renoites Live, uh, another live taping of the Renoites podcast. We have. I'm excited. This week's guest on the podcast, or this month, we do the live episodes once a month, is Brad Bynum from Elephant Rifle, also former editor of the Reno News and Review. And we're going to talk about trivia a little bit, too, because I, as many listeners know, host trivia nights several nights a week. And Brad's kind of the the OG trivia guy for Northern Nevada. So excited to talk about all of those things. But before we get into the actual episode, before I introduce you, Brad, I just want to take a moment to thank Will from Black Rabbit Mead. Woo! Yeah. For, for giving us a spot to uh, to do these live episodes. It's been really fun to do live episodes the last seven or eight months or so. And this is great because we have a very like intimate audience tonight. And so you might hear some other voices on the podcast today do a little Q&A throughout the episode, perhaps. So really exciting to be here. If you want to support the show, one way that you can do that, whether you're here in the crowd or out in the listening audience, I do have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash renoites. This is a... You know, local community-oriented, self-funded, community-funded project. So you can sign up on Patreon to throw a couple bucks in the, the virtual tip jar if you want to support the show. So let's get right into it. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Nice to have you here. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, so let's start. I definitely want to talk about all of those different things. But first thing, let's talk about Elephant Rifle, because you have a new album that's out now, and you have an album launch show next week at the Holland Project. For folks who don't know Elephant Rifle, I know this is the worst question to ask a musician. Can you just describe kind of what uh, what is Elephant Rifle? What kind of music do you play? What's the history of the band? So Elephant Rifle, uh, we, yeah, our new album is called Broken Water, um, and it just came out um, a couple weeks ago. And we're having our record release slash tour kickoff May 20th at the Holland Project. And then we're going on tour, and uh, we're playing a bunch of Spots all over the Midwest and the West, and uh, playing a festival in Minneapolis. And the festival that we're playing in Minneapolis is called Catterwall. And the the idea of the Catterwall Music Festival is that it's all what's called noise rock. And that genre is sort of the genre that if you're going to like peg us into a single genre, is probably the genre that we fit into the most neatly. Um, it's sort of a niche genre in that it's like um, a pretty specific mix of 
post-punk um, and but a little bit more heavy than a lot of post-punk. So it's like a weird mix of like slightly more heavy post-punk. Um, and I, I think that's probably a, a pretty good place to start with us. Uh, the thing that we often, the trifecta that we often talk about is for Tavares, our sound is, is, uh, uh, 90s noise rock, which is bands like Jesus Lizard and, um, uh, Shellac and Sonic Youth and like eighties hardcore, like Bad Brains and Dead Kennedys, um, and Black Flag. And then, like, we also love 70s classic rock. Hmm. So, like, ZZ Top and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. So, and I think that our music, especially on the new album, draws a little bit on all those things. And we also like 60s psychedelia, you know, like the Grateful Dead and things like that. And then there's a little bit of that in there. And we also like just a lot of different kinds of stuff. So, it's a weird mix of stuff. But I think if you're going to put it in one genre, it'd be noise rock. Gotcha. Um, but we've been the band here in town for, uh, for 10 years, more than 10 years. We started in 2000, we played our first show in 2010. And what's great about making music in Reno is that like those kind of narrow sort of genre definitions are not as important here because it's such a small community that where people like the arts and like to support the arts, but there isn't a lot of gatekeeping around the arts. So that people who wouldn't normally listen to noise rock or even know what that is would still come out and support a band like Elf and Rifle because we come out and support other bands and that the music community has a lot of like support. Yeah. Um, and that, that people come to different kinds of shows, even if it's not the like narrow music genre or narrow niche genre that they like. So people will come out and support a different kind of yeah. band. Well, we were, we were talking about this previously where is that because Reno is not big enough to have like specific niches for specific genres. So if you're going to play a show that there's not another band who's in your exact same genre. So you're going to end up playing a show with someone who's maybe a little different than you might be if you were playing in a bigger city where you could just play several bands who are all much more similar to each other. Yeah. And you see that in, in places like the Bay area where the, like, like even like adjacent scenes, you know, like even the punk and hardcore scenes are like separate scenes, hmm. you know, and, and, you know, whereas here, you know, we're friends with, with rappers we're friends with people who play for the philharmonic we're friends with like guys that are country singers you know people that, like very distant genres and and we come to go to each other's shows and there's like support there and there's also a bit of like musical cross-pollination as i like to call it we're like you know our old bass player is a jazz musician and brings like a whole like jazz background and everything into into the music and 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 we had that as part of the band for a long time and you get a lot of that kind of like cross pollination and synergy that comes from having people from different parts of the scene kind of support each other. And that definitely is like a plus side of b being a community that's really creative and has access to San Francisco and has access to bigger cities that have a lot of like, you know, contemporary and up and coming arts and culture. But here up in the mountains and in the desert, we have also a degree of isolation. So I think what happens in my experience a lot, like growing up here, is that we'd go down to San Francisco and we'd go see concerts or we'd, or we'd go to the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art or we'd go to other art galleries or go to other theater events or whatever in San Francisco or even Sacramento or whatever. And then we'd come back up here and then we'd take it out to the desert and we'd get weird with it. You know what I mean? Like, and just spend some time like out in the Black Rock Desert or out in the wilds of Nevada and taking drugs and whatever else. And that whatever creative projects you have and whatever you're inspired by after you take some time out here with isolation with it 
it starts to morph and take on an identity of its own and that you have other people with different backgrounds, with different perspectives, with different genre experiences, whatever it is that are all kind of feeding into each other's art. And I think it makes for a very supportive and very, um, exciting place to be creative yeah can you tell me a little bit about your other band you mentioned that one of your band members has a jazz background how did you all come together and uh can you talk a little bit about how you all bring something different to the to the group well it's a nice thing about my background as a music journalist is that i got to meet a lot of musicians so like most of the guys who are in elephant rifle or who have been in elephant rifle are people i originally met by writing about them Mm. well will and i were talking about this earlier that like one of the things that that was challenging for me as a journalist is that um, it's really difficult to be an objective journalist and also be a creative person. And that that sort of ethical quandary was always and is always difficult for me because mm. it's like I benefit a lot of ways from, um, from having access to, so, so the, like conflict conflicts of interest would come up a lot and be have something that I'd have to think about a lot in my work as a journalist, because I also wanted to be a musician and to be a creative person and be an, be an artist and to be creating and to be able to cover that scene and also be a part of it. It's hard to avoid conflicts of interest Mm -hmm. because you like, for example, you know, my band's playing at the Holland project in a week and a half. Right. Um, or less. And in the old days when I was at the news and review, it'd be like, okay, now, does that create a situation? Is it a conflict of interest for me to now cover anything that's happening at the Holland Project? And I'd have to think about that, you mm. know, and be like, okay, no, because, I mean, there's too much. The Holland Project is like a arts hub for the community, you know. That's, it's too central of a place to be able to avoid talking about everything that's happening there just because my stupid band's playing there. But in the same way, I benefited from it. Being a music journalist gave me a lot of easy access to meeting and befriending other musicians. And so I made a lot of, I I mean, I was friends with a lot of them anyway, just because I'd go to shows and I was a musician and our bands played together and stuff like that. But a lot of the, like Clint, who's the guitar player of Elephant Rifle, the first time I ever met him was when I was writing a story about his band, Thinking French, who were a fantastic Reno band in the 2000s. Um, And we got to be friends and I knew other people in the band. Um, But yeah, so Clint is the guitar player. Um, and he's been in a bunch of great bands in town over the years. He was the, one of the original music directors of the Holland project. Um, and was one of the founding people that brought the Holland project into being. And I feel like that's something that he deserves more credit for than he gets. Um, cause he, in the early days of the Holland project, he was a big part of it as was Ty, who was our second drummer. Um, and so we, Clinton and I, and a group of us, and this is a perfect example of what I was talking about. We went down to see a Jesus Lizard reunion show in 2009 at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And on the way back from that show, we're, it was a whole like car full of Reno people. And, um, and um, everybody in the car fell asleep except for Clinton who was driving and, me, and I was sitting shotgun. And we're like, God, that was a great show. We should start a band like that. And then we did. And that's what became Elephant Rifle. And it started with me and Clint and our original drummer was this guy, Troy, who was a really great guy. He was in this, he was the drummer of this fantastic Reno band called the Young Lions. And then he also played in this band, uh, um, Swahili. Sorry, it took me a minute to get get the name. And they, Swahili as a band moved up to Portland and, um, and, uh, he, so he moved shortly after we started the band after about six months. So then we got our, our friend Ty 
he expressed an interest to play drums with us right away. And then I was playing in another band with Scott Bates, who's our bass player. Um, and that was the foursome for a few years. Scott moved away. We got our friend Mike Mayhall to play bass, who's the jazz bassist who I was talking about. Then Ty moved to New York. He's doing really well there. And then we got Mike Young, who we knew because uh, he was he played and he was the drummer for um, a bunch of great bands that we played with over the years. Um, but most famously, he was the drummer for the Saddle Tramps. And he was the sound guy at the alley. And we hated playing at the alley, except for that Mike Young would always make us sound better than anywhere else. So we're like, and we knew he was a great drummer from uh, Them Sums of Bitches, which is another band he played with, and The Sisters Doom. And so he was just a really great drummer, and so we asked him to take over for Ty after Ty left, and it just was a perfect fit. But then Mike left the band, and we brought Scott back. So this new album, Broken Water, is the first full length we've done with this particular version of the band. Okay. So that might have been pretty convoluted band history, but it's 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 neat because it's like we've really benefited from having a bunch of different creative people in the band over the years, mm. um, and all of whom have slightly different backgrounds and bring slightly different skill sets. Um, you know, Clinton is a really just great guitar player and a great songwriter, and Scott's a great songwriter and a great musician who can play like a lot of different instruments. And then Mike is a really great drummer, and he's also a audio engineer. So he's he's really good about thinking of the cohesive whole of a band in a different kind of way, you know. So we we what what I love about playing in a band is that it's creative collaborate it's creative collaboration at its best, and that I think feel like with this particular lineup especially, all four of us bring a completely different skill set and different like um, perspective on yeah. things, and that creates for a good cohesive creative whole yeah what's your original background with music how did you get started creating music are you from like a musical family or when did you first have an interest in creating music um so it's funny because i i my my dad like he he's a little bit of a singer and plays piano and would like when i was a kid he'd play piano and like sing like rolling stone songs and beach boy songs and stuff like that and used to sing for a band um, and I, I got into, I got into music and in like when I was a kid in like the early nineties, well, Trish was there, he can tell you all about it. And, and, and I got really heavy into it and, and was really into bands like Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails and Pearl Jam and stuff like that. Cause that was the stuff that was blowing up at the time when I was in seventh, eighth grade. And I, I took guitar lessons and stuff for a long time and played in bands like in high school and college, um, and then got into music writing and wanting to, cause I started, I, I'm like, if I'm into something, I get books about it. So I was reading every book about music history and stuff that I could find and got, and really wanted to write about music. You know, I wanted, you know, I was reading stuff like, uh, Grell Marcus and Lester Bangs and things like that and wanted to be like a music writer. So I started writing, uh, about music and that's what led me to writing for the news and review, um, which I then wrote for, for, in different capacities for nearly 20 years. And now I have a master's degree in music. Um, my bachelor's degree is in uh, English, but then I, I got my master's degree in musicology slash music history. And I wrote my thesis about British post-punk in the late 70s and early 80s. Oh, right on. You mentioned that you are going on a tour soon. And one thing I'm always interested in is what other cities and other people's perception is of Reno. Because Reno has, you know, our own kind of understanding of what we are as a city Outside of Reno, I think a lot of people probably don't really know what Reno is about. So being a touring musician and going to meet people who are both 
musicians and people in like the music press in other cities. Yeah. And you're kind of like an ambassador, I would guess for Reno's yeah. music world. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience is like of, uh, you know, going to perform in other cities and meeting other musicians and, you know, explaining what not just Reno's music is, but like what Reno is and kind of the identity of Reno that you present as a band. Yeah. It's funny. We, every interview, just about every interview I've ever done, and it's pretty great because this new album, we, we've got a really awesome label that we're working with, Learning Curve Records out, out of Minneapolis. And they're fantastic. And they, we've got a really good publicist. And so I've been doing a lot of like national interviews and stuff. And everybody asks about Reno. And when we're on tour and we show up to a new place, people are like, what's it like living in Reno? And the people used to always ask, the question that people used to always ask is, what is it? What do people in Reno think of that show, Reno 911? People mm-hmm. used to always ask that everywhere we go. Not that show's not as popular now as it was, but I don't even know if it's still on. But that used to be like a variation of that question. But people are so curious about the Reno thing, so that you we do end up assuming this role of like cultural ambassadors, where we talk about like what's it like being in Reno. And I for for a long time, I really enjoyed that. Like I enjoyed talking about some of the stuff we were talking about earlier in the interview, where it's like, okay, there's this great cross pollination because there's these different genres and it's everybody's supportive. It's a small community, but it's tight knit. You know, we're friends with jazz musicians and rappers and country singers and all this kind of stuff, and everybody comes to each other's shows. Yeah, you, you I, said it a million times. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, it, but but I, and and it's true, and it's still true to a degree, but it's it it feels less like it feels less true now than it used to in a way. Um, just because I feel like now the city, it might just be, I think part of it is me getting older and that I've had to, you know, I've had a bunch of family medical situations in the last few years that have sort of like taken me away from being as community oriented as I used to be. So I'm not making it out to other people's shows as much as I used to when I was, when it was my job to cover them. Um, and, and was going out to everything I could. And and so I've focused less, I had, since I've had to focus more on my family, I focused less on the community side of it. And so I think part of it's my own disconnect from it, but I also do think that Reno has changed in some ways in the last few years. I think it's more expensive to live here now. I think it's more, um, I think that this culture's gotten a little bit more, I use the term yuppified or yuppied. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, it's like there's, there's like more of a yuppie quality now than there used to be. And sometimes people are like yuppies. That's like a eighties thing to say. And I'm like, but it's, 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 it's not passe. It's just that people have forgotten about what that means, mm. you know, and that that's, it, it, it's, it, there's this, this like, like superficial new money, like flimsiness to a lot of what's happening in arena nowadays where it doesn't seem invested in deep rooted community and in a, lack of texture. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like stuff that's just that seems very like fleeting and superficial, and 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 doesn't seem like stuff where it's about community support and it's about like bonding with different kinds of people and about like you know hearing different kinds of music and, and getting exposed to stuff that's outside of your whatever narrow silo your own cultural experiences and experiencing other things. Whereas Reno, you know, for a while in like the early two thousands, I'd say really fostered a lot of that. Mm. Um, and it was really neat to kind of come out of that scene and be a, have a hand in making that. And I, f- I feel like you still see that distilled in certain places. And I know I've already bigged up the Holland Project once in this interview, but I'll big up the Holland Project again as being sort of a nexus for a place where you can see a lot of different kinds of music, see a lot of different kinds of art, experience a lot of different kinds of culture, um, and see a lot of different kinds of people all kind of hanging out, having a good time, and ex- 
and hearing and experiencing different kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I know you mentioned the Holland Project, but I'm also curious what other venues or organizations, like who are the uh, protectors and carriers on of this kind of culture that you're talking about as Reno is changing? Who do you think or what venues, like what, um, what is maintaining that kind of vibe that you appreciated about Reno before in, you know, Opposition to all the changes that are happening. Well, I think the Holland Project is kind of like the, the nexus, but I think that this is also a good opportunity to mention how great and how thankful and grateful I am that the News and Review is back, mm. um, and that 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 it still exists because you know there was a part of me you know so so I was the editor of the paper when we had to shutter it. I got laid off and we shuttered the paper when the pandemic hit. Cause we lost 75% of our advertising revenue, like overnight, basically, um, in, in spring of 2020 and, and I got laid off and, and it was a really heartbreaking thing to write like what might have very well have been the final issue of the paper. And so I was really glad that Jimmy Bogle bought the paper and brought it back and I contributed to the first couple of issues. And I, I just actually read the May issue this morning and it's fantastic and it looks great. Um, and then there's some great stories in there. And so to even just have the news and review back in existence and have it be something that people can pick up, that to me is a, is a reflection of the fact that there is still some life in town, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a little bit heartbreaking for me just cause I was burnt out by the end of it and I don't feel as connected to the paper as I once did. Um, but I, you know, it's kind of like seeing an ex thrive, you know, you're like, well, we're broken up, but I'm glad you're doing well kind of a thing. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit of that kind of a feeling. Um, but I, but I do think that it, it, it's a good standard bearer for being like, okay, there's still some pockets of cool stuff here and that it itself is sort of a compass for finding some of that. Yeah. For, I, for people who aren't that familiar with Reno's media. So the news and review is back as a monthly newspaper, but it used to be Reno's ongoing alt weekly so yeah. it was like the all you know all the alt weekly newspaper that had all of the band events it had all of kind of more of the cultural reporting yeah. than the the daily newspaper did yeah can you talk a little bit about just the the value of alt weekly newspapers in general so you worked for the news and review for so long i'm sure you're familiar a lot of other cities have an alt weekly that is really the center of that kind of journalism can you yeah. just talk about alt weeklies as a a form of journalism and and what draws you to that yeah, so the basic utility of the Alt Weekly is that, you know, whereas you would pick up the daily newspaper to find out about what happened yesterday, you might pick up the weekly to find out about what's going to be happening this weekend. So it's a little bit more like forward facing in some ways. And also the, the weekly, I mean, that was like sort of the basic bread and butter utility of it. But it also provided a forum for, um, uh, additional cultural and, and business and economic and journalistic critique. So, you know, it was kind of like one of the roles of the weekly was to criticize what was happening at the daily. One of the roles of the weekly was to, you know, criticize what's happening in the business community. And, you know, and I don't mean criticize it like blandly make fun of it, although sometimes we did that too, but also to, to, to look at structural problems, look at issues of integrity, look at ethical concerns, like in all, all those capacities with it. And, and to provide like a different forum for different kinds of voices and to provide a, a, a different forum for different kinds of stories um, and to provide a, a forum for different kinds of cultural discussions, you know, and to talk about communities that maybe weren't getting the same representation in other media to, t- to you know, like, you know, uh, 
Alt weeklies were historically champions of LGBT community long before other media outlets were, you know, for mm-hmm. example, um, you know, and, and that's sort of the cultural legacy of it. And alt weeklies started with, you know, in the sixties with like the village voice and some of these classic papers and, it, and grown up here and in, and I'm a native Nevada and I was born in St. Mary's hospital in Reno. Um, and growing up here when the news and review it started as the Nevada weekly in the nineties and, and we would read it. I mean, I would read it like all the time. And then when I was in college and I got an opportunity to start writing for it, it really meant a lot because it, it was the community newspaper. And w- I think what's important about alt weekly, not just in terms of contrasting with the daily, but to contrast with, with, um, um, the internet is that whereas the internet is the world wide web, right? So it, it, it spans like global information and you're getting information from, you know, you know, Indonesia and, and Australia and Antarctica and everywhere <laughs> else, you know, the, the focus of, uh, of the Reno news and review was Reno. I mean, it was right. It's just like Renoites, you know, yeah. your focus, it's like the, the coverage is about this specific place. It's not topic based. It's about this community and what this right. community needs, what this community is focused on, what this community wants, what this community is, you know, trying to digest and and manifest. And so and so, it's supposed to be in a lot of ways a mirror of the community, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that, yeah. I, I think right. that. Yeah. This, are you guys having fun? Hi, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome. Yeah, so some new yeah. <laughs> new folks have joined us while we're recording. Uh, no, I think that you're right. As far as having media that is focused on a location that is specifically regional for an area, because that's an automatic connection for people. Yeah. I can read about things that are happening anywhere in the world, but I'm never going to have as strong of a connection to reading news, even if it's something that I'm interested in. If like I'm reading music news and I'm really into music, but I'm reading about shows and bands that are in other parts of the world, I'll never have the same, quite the same connection as reading about something that's happening in my own backyard, that the familiarity of it's a show at a venue that I know of. It is, you know, someone that I've heard of that yeah. they're Reno is a, it's at a bar you've been to. Yeah. Right? It's, it, I mean, it's the size of town that I have found in just doing this podcast in the last couple of years. It's very easy to feel like you are connected to and know and understand the people around you and having media that recognizes that and kind of brings all of that together in one place and, you know, the Internet now, like you said, is everywhere in the world. But part of the focus of this show is, like, it doesn't have to be. Just right. because something's online doesn't have to mean that it's universal. I don't expect basically anyone who lives outside of Reno to have a strong interest in listening to a Renoized podcast because it is so oriented towards the people who know this place already a little bit. Which is great. And and it's – it's. I mean, I admire that approach because in a way you're limiting your market. You oh, know? for sure. <laughs> but but in a way, but it's a market that needs it, you know. Right. And it's it's like with all week all weeklies and alternative journalism generally is that it's it's in a weird mid spot because it's like you hear these like think you know or read these like think pieces nowadays that's like quote unquote legacy media versus social media, right? Mm. And like you know, and what's crazy about that particular dichotomy of social media versus legacy media is that the alternative media falls somewhere in between. You know, it's not quite, you know, the New York Times style legacy media, but it's also not quite like fucking TikTok. You mm-hmm. know? And, and, and it has some of the best of both those worlds, I think. And not a lot of the worst of either of them. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I, I kind of feel like alternative journalism is good because you're it's a it should be a trusted source. It should be a vetted source. There should be some sense of journalistic standards. There should be some sense of ethical standards. Um, and there should be some, you know, statement about that. It should be. It should, 
abide by a lot of those ethical and journalistic standards, but should also acknowledge subjectivity, acknowledge some of the limitations of the storytelling, acknowledge all, some of that stuff that, that, you know, that highlight that social media, and it should also be fun and entertaining in the way that social media could be and, and have some snark and have some, some character and have some fun right? in the way that good social media can. But then have the journalistic standards and ethics that good legacy media have, and, and so I'm, I'm a big. Even though I'm not directly involved as much as I used to be with the Reno News Interview, I'm really happy that it's back in some form, and I they just celebrated their one year anniversary since the return, and I'm really proud of them for bringing it back. And right on, yeah, that's their one. Yeah. I think one of the things that a lot of people appreciated about the News and Review when it was weekly is it was the source for everything that's going on, especially music and events for yeah. the week. Like it had the, the center spread of both pages was like the weekly events calendar. And it's yeah. got every day of the week, all of the bars that you know, and all of the events that they're doing for that week. Yeah. And that I think we've kind of lost in the monthly format. It's not there. Yeah. And hasn't fully been replaced in an electronic format. So where do you think that we might end up having something like that that's like a central hub for the what's happening in Reno? Because I don't know that that really exists quite yet. Well, I want to give a shout out to Kelly Lang, who was the calendar editor at the News and Review for like 20 years. And she was like an MVP person because she put that together every week. I mean, she was the entire time I was on staff, she was the calendar editor from my first day in 2008 on staff to my last day in 2020. And she was there before me. Um, and she was, and she was fantastic because she put that together every week and, and, and she was so meticulous about making sure everything was correct and she confirmed shows and she was going through different bars, you know, like this is a while ago. So it was like MySpace and Facebook and everything, you know, um, and, and, and calling, calling venues and dealing with curmudgeonly old bar owners and stuff like that. And just, and she was just, she, I mean, she still is an amazing person, but she was an amazing colleague and a great cause she'd just show up and do her job. Super low key, super just awesome, super pro, um, and you really need somebody like that to take it on because it it, it is a you need somebody who's meticulous and uh, abides by strong journalistic standards, but who's willing really willing to do a super fucking tedious job, and that's an unusual combination. And she's a real MVP for doing it. Um, and I think that I think that it's also content that should transfer to a digital format i mean there mm -hmm. should be a website that we could do that right you think be that and i've seen a couple of people try a couple of instagrams a couple of different social media things where people are like and it's always so incomplete because to do it right you have to put in a lot of time and effort to do it and you have to be super meticulous and you have to be super inclusive because if you're if you're like only doing you know the four your four favorite bars you know that's going to that's going to show up you know, so you have to be willing to be like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't ever go to Davidson's or wherever, but I still need to list all their events. You know, um, I'm not trying to pick on Davidson's. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about like the... I'm not even sure if Davidson's yeah. exists. I don't know. It's, that's here in the brewery district, right? Yeah, it's like around <laughs> the corner from us. Uh, um, I think one of the things that's a challenge. So, so you were the editor of the Reno News and Review when the pandemic happened, and yeah. the, I think the biggest impact everyone knows of the pandemic is all the bars and the restaurants and the places that people go shut down. Yeah, and then those are the main advertisers for an alt weekly. Yeah, so all the ad revenue that. just kind of disappears. Like if your bar's closed, you're not advertising, and then yeah. uh, the the like knock on effects of that on media is huge. So obviously, you're so tied to the fates of 
the bar and restaurant world and the advertising world, yeah. which is such a challenge for media in general, like yeah. to be so reliant on advertising. And that's one thing that I'm always curious about is as we kind of move into other forms of media, digital media, I'm doing a podcast. Like, how do you see media that's not less maybe ad reliant or are there other ways to monetize media as we're kind of moving away from just print? Uh, it, it seems like you've had an inside view of how advertising really can make or break any kind of media. What I, do you, what would you like to see as far as that, that relationship with advertising and media? I don't think that there's an elegant solution. I don't think that there's an easy solution. I mean, I, I, we tried really hard with mixed success to keep up a good separation between ad- advertising and editorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that ethically we had conversations about on a weekly ongoing basis. Um, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, you're looking for events to cover. It's hard not to look at your own paper and see who's advertising, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we tried really hard not to do that. But you become aware of who's advertising and who's not just by looking at reading the paper, you know, after it comes out and that kind of thing. Um and I, I, I see conflicts of interest all the time in, uh, in other people's publications. You know, I'm not going to name names, but there's other publications where you'll see like, oh, look at this nice four-page article. And then like two pages later, look at this nice full-page ad. You know, um, and that, I mean, I think it's unavoidable. And I think that the, I mean, I think that really the best sort of models for media going forward are things like an NPR type model where there's a little bit of public funding and a little bit of like reader supported subscription funding, direct support, hopefully some, you know, real grant money type funding, you know? So people who I think, I think anybody I'm going to return to the band for a minute. Yeah. Cause I want to ask you about this. Cause we talked about this previously about things like grant funding and finding ways to, you know, as an artist yeah. to fund what you do yeah, uh, because there needs to be some degree of, uh, you know, public funding, grant funding yeah. for you to survive and create things, right? So yeah, so we got a grant for this album, and it wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was a little bit of amount money that was just like, okay, there was these pandemic-related grants that you could get, and I was like, the, and I saw some other people I know in less I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way of saying <laughs> this. <laughs> I'll just say other. <laughs> I saw some people in some other bands that got some grant money, and I was like, that motherfucker can get some money. <laughs> so so I was like, I'm gonna who you know who gets money? The people who apply. Mm. Yeah, that's who gets it. It's just, I'm like, so I'm and you know, I'm like, I I can write a fucking grant. I've never written one before, but I'm a good writer. I can apply for a grant. So I did. I got I got some money for the band to and we used it to basically cover a little bit of the recording costs because then we had a finished album and they were able to shop around and get a pretty decent little record deal for it. Um, but it was like, but even getting the grant was felt really, and I think that part of that, that's another benefit of being in Nevada is that there's like less competition because there's not that many arts people, artists, art orgs and bands. So these individual, um, arts grants were pretty easy to get, especially during the pandemic where there was extra money for them. Um, but I think that that's great. I mean, I think that that public support is, I mean, I, I would much rather the government be spending money to subsidize the arts than spending money to, you know, bomb places, you know, or to like 
force doctors not to be able to do their jobs, you know, like all these other like kind of horrible things that the government does, you know, supposedly in the names of its citizenry, I would much rather than be, you know, helping struggling bands or struggling artists or struggling writers be able to make their art. Um, so I think, and I think that's also true of journalism. I think that some public support for journalism, I don't think it should be like totally state funded media, but I think some balance where you're, they're getting some, some grants with no oversight and no like, you know, response for it. Sorry, we have to, we have to shout over the traffic for a second. I will shout over the motherfucking traffic. <laughs> I, I, I really don't mind. I think it adds some flavor. That's right. Yeah. So it's on a live taping in, in the brewery district. Yeah. You got cars. Um, I think it was motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, you're we talking about public funding for, for media. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think like an NPR type model where you get a, you get a balance of some public funding um, that's that's strictly grant based. You know, it should be like MacArthur grants where it's like, okay, here's this lump sum of money. You do with it what you choose and not have any like, oh, you have to follow these conditions. Um, I, I, there should be less. Elon think about this like more important. Fuck Elon. <laughs> <laughs> what does that actually mean? Yeah, well. Yeah, I agree. I 100%. And, and 100% fuck Elon, you know? I mean, I just, I just. So what I, the reason I was going to bring up the band is that there is a song on the album called Every Billionaire is a Crime. And I wholeheartedly stand by that sentiment and want that sentiment like broadcast loud because I, I think that nobody should have that much money. And if you got that much money, you exploited somebody. And if you didn't exploit somebody, your daddy or your granddaddy or your great granddaddy exploited somebody. I mean, it was, it was about exploiting somebody to get that much money. I mean, you can earn a million dollars by working hard. You can earn $10 million by working hard. You can maybe earn a hundred million dollars by working hard. But you don't earn a billion dollars without exploiting people. Mm -hmm. And if you did make that much money, like by accident, you invent the microchip or some shit, then the first thing you need to do is set up a foundation and start giving that money away. And what I would, and I, so I think, okay, if I accidentally invented the microchip and found myself a billionaire, what would I do with that money right away? I would set up a foundation and I would want to give arts and media organizations grants with uh, like the MacArthur Foundation. I mean, so, so like personally, I mean, the amount of money I want to have is the amount of money where I wouldn't have to think about money because I don't want to have to think about money. So, it's, and, and I was thinking about this recently and I think that that's probably about like, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, Twenty million dollars, maybe. I mean that. That I mean, if you're a bill, it's, but see, that's the thing. You wouldn't be able to keep it at twenty. You'd have to spend money to keep it at twenty, and then push it higher. Uh, I think that that's I what think happens. Doesn't solve the problem. No, no, this is great. No, no, this is great. This is great. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. I love this conversation because I also I I think sometimes about if I won like the lottery, right? Like, what would I do if I had a hundred million dollar lottery winning? And the first thing that I always think about is like, shit, how do I give away the, t the, the first, I don't, if I, if I, don't, I, like, how do I get rid of 90, like today? Like, how do yeah. I, you wouldn't have 90 though. Yeah. I mean, even after tax, whatever. So taxes take a lot, but whatever, yeah, taxes. just, just the idea of having but so much money that you have to fully I like think. manage that money. I don't want that. I just want enough money to live and do the things I want to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think for, for most people, that's not much. That much money. 
That's the hard part. It should be easier. It should it be easier to give away money? A foundation isn't the solution to this problem, by the way. Okay, what do you think is? I don't think we as a society have developed a solution to this problem because if you have a foundation, there are rules about expenses, budgets, whatever other. There's auditing that goes into that. Plus, you always have to account for the money, so there have to be rules. Right. No matter how much money you're giving someone, even if it's five hundred dollars, which is a lot of money. Yeah. There has to be some sort of guidelines that says this is what you can and cannot use it for. Yeah. And as long as you, the foundation head slash runner slash founder, are setting those rules, it's still a problem. Because then it's what you want. Yeah. And you're a human, so you have things that you are very subjective about. And then you say things like, oh, you know, you can use it for, I don't know, insurance, meds or something, but you can't spend the money on art school. That's what your foundation decides. This right. is this is why I want just insanely high taxes so that you don't have that decision being made by the billionaire that you can't even get to be a billionaire because you're taxed before that money even hits your pocket and then have the government be funding things like we're talking about these grants and those kind of things. So take the, you know, uh, the opinion of the billionaire out of the equation of how they're spending. As long as it's a billionaire, there's going to be an opinion because someone's going to ask you what you think about things. Yeah. Yeah. The laws are made by people, but the people have to answer to other people. And so, I don't know. I don't think there's a fair way, the way society's creative structures to solve this problem. I think it's an important problem to solve, but I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> well, no, I... I, I no, can I take a... <laughs> um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that like, okay, you know, you're a billionaire, you set up a foundation, you find, cause you're right. Cause then the subjectivity comes into it and you're like, okay, I think that the arts are important. I maybe don't think that. So my mom, I'm super proud of my mom. She's somebody who is really amazing and works really hard. And she's the director of the Reno Cancer Foundation. And it's a really, really small nonprofit that helps cancer patients. Okay. And how do they help? <coughs> They pay medical bills, they pay living expenses, they pay (coughs) rent, groceries, all kinds of stuff. She just pays bills. I mean, she just, and all you have to do is prove that you have cancer. And you just show up with the doctor's note and say, I have cancer. And then, and then she starts paying bills, rent, medical bills, groceries, living, uh, other living expenses. And it's a really, really, really amazing. It's a really amazing foundation. My mom's worked for him since the eighties. Um, and I'm super proud of her and what she does. Um, and so I see, I see organizations like that and it gets very little media coverage. It gets very little publicity. It gets very little public acknowledgement, public support, but the work that that foundation does is really, really, really amazing. So I have a personal reason why I think that foundations are awesome. Some of them are okay. Some of them are okay. And I, and I agree that, you know, sometimes you have foundations, you know, but I, and I think about like I, the MacArthur found foundation is one that I also think about just because it deals directly with artists and, it, and the way they assign their, their money and allocate their funds is another one of those things where it's just like, Oh, this isn't, you know, this is, you know, like how many geniuses they I know. Five? Yeah. No, it's not, it's, it's, it's not enough. I agree. But if there was, but what if there were dozens and dozens and dozens What's of organizations like that? What if my art is some super niche thing that's a combination of, I don't know, murals and, I don't know, sculptures or something that nobody has ever seen and I'm the only one that does that in the world. But then they're like, well, it's not mainstream enough. So there's no recognition for your work. Right. It's not that your art isn't good. It's no. That your art isn't popular. No, it's that it doesn't meet the criteria for the grant. 
So there's that. I don't think there's ever any equity in these processes. And it's not, like I said, it's not anyone's fault in particular. This is not some sort of indictment of society. It kind of no, is. No, it is. It is. It, but I mean, but we're all part of society, right? We yeah. make these rules. We set these customs. We decide on these things over time. But it starts with these conversations, yeah. I think. Well, I think so too. Yeah. And, and Brad, one thing that we talked about, too, is that there are, like, national governments who also do invest in the arts um, yeah. themselves, right? So it's not reliant on foundation funding, but there are countries that see their culture and their art as an export that they actively fund. We talked about K-pop. So, I mean, we're talking about music on this episode and K-pop is a hugely popular genre of yeah. music because South Korea is saying, Hey, this is our cultural export. This is an art that we, you know, believe is popular and can bring attention to our country. And then that ends up, you know, you have BTS selling out stadiums all over the world and yeah. stuff. And that music is super fun. Yeah. And yeah, that's that very Yeah, I, that's true. Our, too. Yeah, it's super yeah, and then and then they they have those boys go into the military and they make a big big fuss about it. Yeah, so so I agree. But also out of that, you also get something like Parasite, which is an amazing movie, um, and won all these awards and won all this. So I, I mean, I think I think some combination of private foundations and public funding and direct listener or viewer or reader support subscription service kind of stuff i mean i think that there's i think that the i think that there is not a single elegant solution like you're saying is because it, it's systematic and it's emblematic of, or it's it's systemic to an entire cultural set of problems right but how much disposable income do you need as a renoites to support the arts sustainably because people complain about the cost of living here housing is expensive things cost so much money People would love to do stuff and, you know, support the artists that they love, support local arts culture. But then it's like, well, I need this extra money for X, Y, and Z. I can't afford to do that. I can't pay for this Patreon. I can't do this for this artist that I love. Yeah. So there's also that. No, oh, yeah, 100%. So then what does the mix look like? I'm a big fan of public-private partnerships. Like, don't get me wrong. But what's the public ratio, public-private ratio, general, we know ratio that would work? I don't, I have no idea. Yeah. That's a, that's I, mean, I, I that's think it's, I think it's, it's such a complicated question and I think it is individual to each community and I think it's individual to each community at each time. Cause what's like true now mm-hmm. wouldn't have been true 10 years ago yeah, and, and what's sense. true now wouldn't be true. And it's hard. It's impossible to predict. It is. And so, I mean, there is not a good, there's just not, you're right. There's not a good solution, but I do think that there's a lot of ways of looking at the problem and thinking about like, okay, can we push it this way? Can we push it that way? And I do think that, that Korea, South Korea is a great, and New Zealand is another great example where there's like big public support for the arts in these relatively small countries. And that with a little bit of public support, they're able to make art that is either, you know, cultural phenomenon, granted that it's pretty exploitative, um, or is has like incredible artistic merit or some combination thereof. Mm-hmm. And... I totally acknowledge that those criteria are subjective. Subjectivity is going to limit any view of artistic success of any kind. And, you know, and that's one of the things that like with, with all weekly journalism, for example, it was so, it's so important, I think for journalists to acknowledge subjectivity and to acknowledge like, Hey, I'm coming at this from my perspective and, you know, as a straight white guy, I'm coming at this from my perspective as somebody who's a native Nevadan. I'm coming at this from my perspective of somebody with a punk rock background. 
and that I was, you know, sort of raised on these specific cultural touchstones and that that criteria, I mean, I have a knee jerk reaction where you said something about Elon Musk when I was ready to like, you know, say, say fuck Elon. <laughs> that's yeah. and, and, and that's, that comes from the punk rock thing, right? You know, like, well, aren't you appalled that he thinks that NPR is a public, uh, like a, a media hub for the government? Yeah. Oh, t- 100%. I'm appalled by that. I'm appalled by everything that guy does though. I mean, I, it, to me, that's just like part of the course of that shit. I think there's an assumption of genius that comes with wealth in the U S that yeah. isn't true. And I think that that's a problem with the MacArthur Grant is because oftentimes the MacArthur Grant is giving money to people that they already are so quote unquote geniuses. Some you, of them are not. Some of them could use the money. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, some of them could use the money. You said the other thing a minute ago. I'm trying to back you up. There. No, 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 I agree. <laughs> there's no absolutes in this. There's, there's no black yeah. and white. Like there's just lots of gray and overlapping and yeah. And, but but it is but it is but so much of that stuff comes from subjective experience. And, and I, I think it's important to acknowledge that in any of these discussions. And I think that if, as, as an artist, it's really great because you get to lean into that. Whereas in journalism, it's hard because in some ways you're trying to balance your subjectivity with uh, like an ideal toward objectivity. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a balance that I personally have always struggled with mm. um, as a journalist. And, you know, I was saying to Will before, before this, that like it, at the news and review, there was like, three overlapping skill sets that I was always kind of grappling with. And that was to be a journalist, to be a writer and to be an editor. And that those three things are, and I was, I'm a really good writer and a really good editor, but I've never been a very good journalist. (laughs) And part of that's because I don't have, I don't have a very good sense for when people are bullshitting me. Um, Really? You could tell about Elon Musk though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a hard part for me too, because I think that, sorry to, to, to no, interrupt sorry. the, the, the nuances of the, uh, how we, how we fund art, because I know I'm glad that we got into this conversation, no, 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 awesome. but, but I, sh- and I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for participating. What's, can you introduce yourself to our crowd here? Cause I didn't get to introduce you at the uh, beginning. Sure. Hi everyone. My name is Eboa. I am not a native Renoite slash Nevada. I moved here a couple of years ago. Well, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that we got to get into Thanks some of the, the some of the detail about how we fund art because I think that's really important. It's it's a conversation I'd love to have. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. that sounds like a whole other episode of the podcast. There you go, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, I struggle with that too because part of the the vibe I try to do on this show and the way that I try to approach things is I don't talk about myself as a journalist because I think that there are certain journalistic standards and expectations that I'm a little uncomfortable with of being held to because I don't have the background in journalism. I don't have the training in journalism. And uh, I just like to talk to people and I don't want to feel like by doing that, I am breaking the rules that I'm causing some kind of harm. I'm not aware of that. I am, uh, you know, not as objective as I could be those kind of things. I just want to be a nice guy who likes everyone and talks to people. And it's hard sometimes to be in a journalistic world that that is seen as, as bad. I don't think that I've liked, platformed a lot of evil on the show so far at least thankfully but that's a challenge i think is trying to find where you fit into a world of journalistic standards when journalism has changed so much like everyone can have a youtube channel or a podcast or whatever it's it is so open now that there's there is a space for people like me and then that creates the debate of like should there be a space in in so-called you know journalism media whatever for people who uh, you know, maybe don't adhere to things like the, you know, objectivity you should have reporting on things. So I find it a, ch- a little bit of a challenge, too. So I'm glad we got to hear a little bit of that conversation about, you know, how we do things and what's the appropriate way to 
uh, to approach those. I, I think it's it's kind of like figuring out funding for arts, where it's like it, it, there's never going to be a clear cut solution, mm-hmm. where it's like an ongoing conversation that needs to happen. It's an ongoing conversation that needs to happen like every week, and you need to be having those conversations and like kind of pushing to the parameters mm-hmm. and questioning yourself, questioning your colleagues, questioning other media outlets. You know, because, because like I say, I see it all the time. I see conflicts of interest. I see, I see what I see as violations of journalism ethics all the time, you know, and sometimes it's as blatant as like, you know, a four page article and then a two page ad a couple pages later. And sometimes it's a little bit more subtle than that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, is this really a conflict of interest or not? And it's hard to say. Yeah. And so I think it is a little bit of, of you know, and, uh, and and you mentioned Bob Conrad earlier, and I think he does a good job of, of trying to navigate some of the stuff. And he, and he, anytime I get together with Bob, we end up talking about this kind of stuff. And, and, um, and I think to, to work in journalism today, you have to be thinking about these issues every day, constantly. Because there are so many voices in our culture right now and because of social media and because of everybody having their own YouTube channel and because of everybody having podcasts and everybody having, I mean, no offense, (laughs) but I, I I make fun of podcasters constantly. I I understand. Good man. Good man. (laughs) But because of how pervasive all that is, it does make it really difficult to cut through the noise. Um, and it does make it really difficult to have, um, a, a, a redeeming and worthwhile focus. Um, you know, and, and, and it's the same with the arts, you know, it's like, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to evaluate. It's hard to know what to trust. It's hard to know what to believe in. And it's hard to also to understand why some things resonate with an audience and other things don't mm-hmm. and to find the audience for whatever your work is, whether that's creating a podcast or making records or, or what, what was that? Murals that are also sculptures, <laughs> murals that are also sculptures and whatever the artwork is and to find an audience or to find a balance for that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an ongoing thing and, and, and it, it, I think if you worry too much about audience, then you then you lose sight of it. There's there's a quote. I might admit I I quote this line all the time, but uh, the J D. Salinger book Seymour and Introduction, which is a fantastic book, and it's an epistolary novel. So it's like one long letter written from one brother to another brother. Um, and it's been years since I've read it, but I've been quoting this line, so I should probably look back and confirm it. But it was. Remember that you were a reader before you were a writer. And I, and that to me is the, is the key piece of advice for any writer, any musician, any artist to remember is that you are your own first audience and that you were a reader before you were a writer. And so you're making what you want to read, what you want to, to see, what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that not to try to, to, to tailor to any individual audience or to tailor to somebody else's expectations or tailor to somebody else's idea of what's good or somebody else's subjective thing or somebody else's criteria, mm-hmm. but, but to rather go for what you, what you want to hear. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I want to have a chance to talk about trivia before the end of our episode. Let's talk about trivia. I want to talk about trivia because, uh, How's everybody, how are you guys? Are you mad at yeah. me for cussing at you? <laughs> everybody. Okay. I'm 
Uh, yeah, more, more, more cousin. Cousin. We, okay. we're already gonna, yeah. we're already going to mark this episode with the explicit tag, so we, can, we can just go fucking, fucking wild, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I want to talk about trivia because that is yeah. another thing that you do that I have a very strong connection with. So everyone who listens to the podcast knows that I've worked for DJ Trivia for the last four years or so, and I do four nights a week at different venues. And DJ Trivia, like, has the last <laughs> year or so since like uh, that we've come out of the pandemic has really blown up in this community. We have forty something venues, so we're all over town. But uh, trivia is relatively new to the Reno world. Like, par trivia has been a thing in a lot of places, but it didn't really exist in Reno maybe, like, more than 10 years ago. But you were kind of the guy, I think, who who brought that. Sierra Tap House, you had a trivia night on Tuesdays, but I host for DJ Trivia now, but it was pre-DJ Trivia. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your, your history with hosting trivia nights? So I started hosting trivia nights in 2006. Um, and so back and back when I started hosting hosting Tuesday night trivia at the Tap House, um, nobody in town was doing a trivia night. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I have enough of a journalism background to know that it's always a bad idea to say you were first. <laughs> yeah, someone's gonna check you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always something. You know, you, you there, there was somebody doing it somewhere in town that I didn't know about. But at the time, as far as I know, nobody had been doing trivia. And I had gone to a friend's wedding up in Portland and had gone with a group of people up there. So I, it's another example of that going to a bigger city and stealing mm-hmm. an idea and coming back and making it weird. Right. Um, but yeah, I'd gone to a friend's wedding up in Portland and we'd gone to a trivia night and we won. And it was so much fun because it was like, and, and I, trivia is, you know, my mom, I'm going to pick up my mom again. She's an amazing lady. She, um, she's babysitting for us right now so that Margaret and I could be here and, um, and it's we're lucky to have Grandma Lois in our corner, and uh, she was a daily and still is a daily Jeopardy watcher. And she mm-hmm. watches Jeopardy every single day. So I kind of grew up in a household that really valued trivia, and you know, m- my dad is a, a huge fan of superficial knowledge as well. And and so um, so we went up to Portland and we played a trivia game, and I'd never been to a bar trivia before. And it's actually at a pizza place, and we won free pizza. And I was like, oh, this is fun. It's easy. It's great. Um, and I, I told a friend, my friend Heather Fuss about that. And when I came back, back to, back to town after that trip and then she and Natalie Handler, who a lot of people around town know, she's local activist and awesome person. Um, yeah. Follow Reno heart to you on Instagram. Yeah. That's uh, one of Natalie's things. And, and she's really great. And she was a bartender at the tap house when the tap house opened. And, um, and she said, uh, she and Heather were talking and Heather's like, I don't know how my name came up, but I think Heather mentioned to me that Natalie was like, we should get somebody to do something fun here. And she's like, you should get Brad Bynum to host the trivia night. So Natalie called me up and she and I are old friends from way back in the day. Wilters can tell you all about it. And she was like, Hey, uh, uh, you want to come host a trivia night at the tap house? And I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. And so I started and I, didn't know that there were things like DJ trivia where you could have questions written. So I would write, I, I, I stole a format basically from the night I played in Portland where there's three theme categories and then a final round of, of four questions. Um, and, and I would write all the questions and write slash compile from trivial pursuit or from the J archive, which is the archive of all the, the jeopardy questions mm-hmm. that's on the internet. And, and from other sources that I could find, um, you know, I, I, I just bought tons of trivia books and, and would steal questions and, and write my own questions. And, and you know, in and, and doing trivia, especially when you're writing it, I had to gauge, like, 
what are topics I know way more about than the average person? And what are topics that I know less about? What are topics that I know the average amount? And to gauge the and to write, you know, so that every category of 10 questions had like three easy ones, three medium, three hard, and then a weird one. Hmm. And to balance like the, the, the questions with all those different things. And, and so I did it for four and a half years at the tap house. Natalie moved to St. James, um, St. James infirmary and, um, and art, uh, Farley, who was the owner of St. James infirmary was a buddy of mine too. And they convinced me to jump ship and come over there too. So I did it for four and a half years. Um, at the tap house in four and a half years at St. James infirmary and wrote thousands and thousands of questions. I would often reuse questions. You want to know my favorite trivia question? Yes. What's your favorite trivia question? The name of what fruit? <laughs> yeah. The name of what fruit comes from an Aztec word meaning testicle. Hmm. Come on in. That's, is that a fruit? Avocado. <laughs> Will Truce, oh. avocado. Good job, Will. Did you know it or is that just an intelligent guess? No, I did pick that little tidbit up somewhere in the In, in your travels? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I mean, and not, not shocking as well why someone would name it after such a thing. Okay, here's, here's another one of my favorite questions. Okay, members of what professional sports team Sing back up on Marvin Gaye's 1972 song, What's Going On? What was that, Margo? The Detroit Lions. It's a Motown. Oh, that makes sense, Detroit. So, yeah. That's fun. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I do enjoy that, so DJ Trivia has, I don't write the questions, right? Because it is a. Uh, a bigger organization. We basically have a clue writing team that gives us the questions in the game. But one thing that I enjoy in the format with DJ trivia is that it does kind of combine the music and the questions. So the songs are not always hints to the answers, but there's always like some kind of connection. So one of the things I enjoy most about being a trivia host with DJ trivia is I get to make a playlist for the night that has this variety of music. And sometimes there's hints that are really easy and sometimes they're hard and I get to play a variety of genres. And one thing that I hear from players a lot is that they appreciate the the diversity of musical styles and eras. And I've really enjoyed expanding my own musical knowledge. Like I, before I started hosting DJ Trivia, I had, you know, I listened to a lot of different kinds of music, but not super, super broad. But in trying to find songs to match questions, 20 questions a night, four nights a week, it has really expanded my, you know, like musical knowledge and catalog. And now I'm listening to stuff that I never would have listened to before, but I added onto a trivia game one night and I'm like, oh, this is kind of a banger. And then now it's on my liked on Spotify forever. Yeah. So it's been really fun kind of being able to merge those things. Cause I'm also like a Jeopardy nut. That was my favorite show when I was a kid. I watched my dad every single day. We had, you know, when TiVo first came out, that was like the first show that I recorded. So I always have like an archive of Jeopardy episodes. So it's been really fun kind of combining the music interest and the trivia interest and being able to do that, uh, you know, in front of a crowd too, like being yeah. able to share that with people. I think part of the fun with hosting trivia nights also, and uh, I'm curious if you agree, is like it is something that does bring people together to do something at a bar. Because oh, yeah. a lot of times you go to a bar and you sit and you drink with your friends and there's no interaction with you and anyone else. But on these trivia nights, it really is. There's like a little bit of a competitive spirit. There's um, teams that come back week after week. Yeah. Uh, oh, can- I, made, I made lifelong friends. I mean, I just, we, uh, Elven Rifle just shot a music video uh, uh, last week, two weekends ago. 
And the director of the music video is a guy who I've been friends with. He was, used to be a trivia night regular. Um, and he, at the time, he was working for, for one of the TV stations as a, as a news director. But now he, he works for a company in town that does, uh, like, like nature videos that are get shown in, like, hospital rooms and stuff. And anyway, he's a really amazing filmmaker, and we're really lucky to be working for him. But he's, like, it's a friendship that, like, now he's, like, a creative collaborator and, like, a good friend. But he's somebody I just knew because he was a trivia regular. Because it is interactive like that. But to your point about making the playlist, that's one of the things I loved about writing trivia is because if because I would be, like, like Margo can tell you, I am a super annoying baseball fan now, and I watch baseball like almost every day. And I wasn't really like that until I started writing trivia, mm. because there's so much great. Because I, you know, because I feel the need to do a sports category every once in a while, and I and I and I love writing baseball categories because there's so much, such a long history, and so many fun, weird anecdotes and historical things about baseball. And that that just diving into the history of baseball and writing trivia categories on baseball just made me love it more and more and more and more and more. Mm. And so there are certain subjects like that that I do do, do like. Okay, I'm going to do try category on this just to see how it turns out and then find out there's this wealth of great material there and then want to do like more categories on that so baseball yeah. is, is the number one thing that comes to mind like that where i just totally fell in love with it writing trivia questions about it yeah it, it's fun to be surprised by something that you're interested in be like you i had no idea i was interested in that until until i was and then you're like oh shoot i that's really interesting. I care about that thing that I had no interest in before is I think a really fun thing to happen. The nice things about the nice thing about writing the trivia though, too, is like my trivia nights got pretty weird. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it got like a reflection of my personality where it, it, it just got, it, it got, they got crazier and crazier so that we would, we would have tiebreakers. And for a long time it was just Rochambeau tiebreakers. And then we would come up with things like, I don't know where this came from, but we would have pants off dance offs. <laughs> I don't want to explain that anymore. Right. I have to. <laughs> but it just got into silly, silly, silly territory a lot. And, and, you know, the questions would be like that and we would do, you know, I, we, we had a lot of fun and, and, you know, I, and like I said, I made a lot of really great friends during that time. And, and, and it's nice to know that trivia now is like, it's such a big thing in town, mm-hmm. but it does also sort of feel like one of those things where it used to be a fun, weird little punk rock thing that now has become like, I don't want to say corporate, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I think it is harder to find that kind of, uh, that independence and that kind of like free spirit. Pants off, dance off. There, I, no, I, I unfortunately so. not, but I mean, maybe I can find a way to integrate. I'll, t- I'll talk to my boss Vicky about if we can get some, some pants off, dance off, maybe I, I, it, it got, it got, it, we, we had a lot of fun. And then, and then those nights were always packed and, and it was probably mm-hmm. because at the time there was nobody else doing trivia nights around town. I mean, for the first like five or I mean, pretty much the whole time I was at the top house, we were the only trivia night mm-hmm. in town. Um, and, and it was, it was, it was a blast. I mean, we, and we, you know, and then at, the, at St. James, it was the same. I mean, we had a lot of, a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. Um, I got tired of being hung over every Wednesday. Though, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to give time for audience. Whenever we do these live episodes, it's really fun to be able to have audience questions. So before we wrap up our show tonight, do we have any questions from our audience for Brad? Will, Will is right here. What do you got for Brad? Well, I got a two-parter, and I think each part you could probably talk for a while on, um, but I'm going to throw them together just because I'm so excited to get your uh, get your thoughts on each, each one of these questions. One is you've been familiar with the Reno music scene for a long while now, yeah. and it's a pretty diverse scene as you were talking about. Wait, I got to talk about my introduction to the Reno music scene. 
please do. My the first thing that I ever went to in the Reno Music Scene was Willstock 1994, <laughs> which was Will Truce's birthday party in 1994, <laughs> where he had the Nine Inch Nails cover band, Mister Self just Mister Self Destruct play, and one of Jeff Dunn's bands that I don't remember the name of. At his house for his fourteenth birthday. That was a and that was time. my introduction to the Reno music scene. So thank you, Will. Continue. That was an eighth grade rager right there for you folks. Uh, I blew my parents' nineteen uh, seventies house speakers out. Yes, we, did. we thought that was a good idea to hook up to. That a, was probably uh, the first time I ever got stoned. Was at that party. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Yeah, so since then, <laughs> you've been following the Reno music scene pretty closely. You're welcome. And, yeah. uh, and you launched uh, me on this path. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, Reno. Um, and as you acknowledged earlier, it's a really diverse scene. And I do find that there's uh, the genres have different degrees of followings. Like right now, electronic in Reno has a huge following. Yeah. Uh, but variety of other forms. So first part of the question is uh, what genres do you think historically have done really well in Reno and why? And then the second parter is uh, there's only a handful of small music venues in this town that traveling artists can come through. And any thoughts on what we might be able to do to provide more opportunities for these traveling artists um, to uh, be able to visit Reno and and uh, share share all that they have. You mean we as in Black Rabbit or is we as in the city? No, I mean, yeah, us as a city. So, for instance, Black Rabbit is hit up all the time, multiple times a week by traveling artists that want to come through and play a show. Yeah. And uh, I, I think in part it's because we're one of just a handful of uh, small music venues in the town. And so... I don't actually really know what the, f- the second part of this question uh, fully is, but just get your thoughts on what we can more do as a community to provide opportunities for these traveling artists to have more of a, a presence in our community, to get them to come through ta- town more and for us all to be able to experience the great things they're doing. I, I, that question is a great question. The genre question is a little bit more difficult for me to answer because I do feel like it's one of those sort of nebulous things that changes a lot, and it's, and it's also really difficult for me to pin down on genre sometimes. Um, um, so basically my answer to that question is, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it, it, and it's also funny cause it's like, I, I think most of my backgrounds in punk rock and in post punk and in punk adjacent music. So, uh, and that stuff used to do better than it does now. Um, and I think that that's just cause I think generally nationally, the audiences for that are aging um, and so that the kind of heavy, noisy punk rock stuff that I play and have played uh, the, the market for that. I mean, there still is a market for it, but it's not as robust as it was. And like, yeah, yeah, it was a little bit less, it was a little bit more of a pervasive taste in like, like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, unless you're like 40 and then maybe you're more likely to like it. But, um, the second question, I think that one of the ironies in my experience at least is that I think one of the best ways to foster a national scene is to support the local scene. And it's like, and I, I know that at least with, with elephant rifle, we benefit a lot because bands from other places want to come here and play with us and that they know that we'll give them a good show and that we'll, have fun and it'll be a we've had bands come here and play and been like afterward been like that was the best show of tour and 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 that 
it's it's really nice for us to know we can help provide a touring band that experience and that they can come here and have fun and have a good show and with a good turnout and a good crowd and a good time and a decent payday. And I think that having local bands that are able to 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 attract other bands to come play here is one of the is one of the ways to do it at, at, at this kind of level. I mean, I'm not talking about like Guns N' Roses playing at the event center, you know. I mean, which is also great and fine, whatever. But to have like just good medium sized bands coming through, I mean, I think that they if they know that they can come and play and have a good time, that 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 word will get around. A disadvantage for Reno is that it's not on a clear route because um, we're a little bit out of the way if you're going I five, and if you so if, and unless you're coming from Salt Lake through, and then that's kind of a long day because there's not a good break between Salt Lake. So as far as like the north south route, you know it's it's hard because you can't you have to like veer away from Sacramento off of I five, and sometimes that's worth it to a band, and sometimes it's not. <laughs> And six months of the year, it's hard because there's giant fucking mountains that get covered in snow. And that can lead to some unpredictability. So, I don't know. Support your local scene. You know? I mean, and I think that that goes, like, I think the bands need to support venues and, 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 and venues need to support bands. And I think that that's, like, kind of the, the hub of it. Um, but like I say, I, I, it, was, it was a lot easier for me to do that 10 or 15 years ago than it is now. And partly that's getting older and partly that's, that's losing a little bit of sense of community because I've had to focus more on family the last few years. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. I mean, as I say, I think it's a, a question that one could talk about for a long while. Yeah. I do want to just throw in there as well that, you guys were talking earlier about having a centralized source for knowing what's happening in the community. Yeah. And that I think could be very powerful to yeah. help nurture not only our local music scene, but the venues who are uh, trying to support the local music scene and want to support the traveling artists coming through that centralized source of information of what's happening in your town this week that R and R was so celebrated for. Yeah. Um, if, if anybody out there uh, uh, wants to dive in and, and really, really commit themselves. And I know there are a few folks are, so let's support them in doing that too. 100%. I think, that cannot be under uh, rated or estimated in its incredible power in letting our community know all the inc- uh, opportunities they have to support the arts around here. And I think that the Reno News and Review could do that again if it was a weekly again. And I think it could become a weekly again if it had advertising support. So, I mean, which is kind of a vicious cycle. But advertising the News and Review... You know, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's like if business, local businesses that want that can put the money in there to support the news and review and help help that paper become better, you know, and, and I and I say that now is like, like I say, kind of an ex-boyfriend of the news and review, you know, where it's like, I, you know, I'm like, ah, I'm glad you're doing well. It's hard for me to spend too much time with you. <laughs> Just hurts my heart a little bit. But I, but I love the news and review and I love what it's meant to this community for for so long. And I, I would love to see the weekly with a robust calendar listing section again. And I think that the best way to do that would be to advertise there. So yeah, I would add that as another thing to do. Advertising the news and review. <laughs> right on. Uh, we probably have time I hope for- Jimmy Bogle listens to this and <laughs> hears me say that. Right. Uh, I'll tag him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we probably have time for one more. You should have him on have, by the way. That's he's on, he's on my, on my list for Good. sure. She could do a whole episode about the news and review. Absolutely. Uh, any other questions for our audience? Probably got time for one more. 
I love how much you all have talked about your moms. Can you talk about them some more? It is Mother's Day. This should be the Mother's oh Day episode. Mm. Absolutely. I, I will go first because I am obsessed with my mom. I am the, like the biggest mom's boy in the world. I tell this, I regularly talk about how my mom is like, uh, like a supercharged electromagnet for our family. Like I moved away when I went to college. I grew up here in Reno. I moved away when I went to college. And um, part of the reason I moved home, I lived in, you know, Portland and Vegas and Oakland, but I moved home because my family is here and my mom has been so central to our family in so many ways that it is, she's created this connection for me with this community. I mean, she's not coming to these events. Like I, my social life doesn't involve my mom that much, but having my mom be like that center, the foundation I, I am from here. She has raised me here. I associate my community and my life here in Reno with my mom so much. And I also am just incredibly grateful for what she has provided for me and my family, right? The ability to do the things that I want to do, the, uh, you know, this, this, the security in my life has come from my mom investing so much of her time and her energy, blood, sweat, and tears for decades to build a stable foundation for me and my siblings is, uh, like the value of that is insane. It is beyond, I, I cannot ever express my gratitude enough. So I am so grateful for that question, especially around Mother's Day, because I cannot, uh, you know, I will never be able to thank my mom enough for all the things that she's provided for for me and our family. It's a just can't even can't, can't even find words for it. She's, she's the absolute best. So thank you. Thank you. That's a that's a really good question. I appreciate that. So, so now you have to make sure this episode comes out on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And I got to actually yeah. make her listen to the podcast. One thing she doesn't do is listen to my podcast. So mm-hmm. she'll have to listen to this one. <laughs> she... <laughs> yeah. uh, do you want to say anything about your mom? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mother's Day is amazing. I have two moms at this point because I'm married. So I get to spend Mother's Day with them. So that's really cool. I think moms are amazing. I think women are amazing. So. Anybody else want to big up their mom? Yeah, I would love to acknowledge uh, just the incredibleness of mothers. Uh, not only do I have my wife, who's an incredible mother of our child, but my mom as well has been so nurturing of of all my incredible or not so much incredible, but oftentimes crazy endeavors I've taken throughout this life. And she's just really supported the creative aspirations and the strong connections with the earth and and certainly scratched her head when I thought when I told her I wanted to open up a meadery, but uh, she's been <laughs> <laughs> she's cheered me along the the whole entire way, and I'm I'm just so grateful for um, her uh, the, just the glimmer in her eye to to help support me doing things that she wasn't necessarily able to do uh, growing up herself, and so much love to you, mom. Aww. My mom's name is Valerie. Valerie. Mm, yeah. That's with three syllables. She always uh, makes sure I pronounce that right. Valerie. And how about you, Brad? So I, I talked about my mom earlier and who's a really amazing woman. And I'm super proud of her and the work she does. And what a great job she did raising me and grandmothering for, for me. Um, but I want to give a couple shout outs. My friend Terry who's here is a great mom. Let's hear it for Terry. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And I got to give a huge shout out to Margot because she's the best. And and we we've had um, some ups and downs and and some some hard times with with um, some health issues in our family. And I feel really really fortunate to have have her by my side and have her here tonight and with me. And it isn't always easy, but I know how lucky I am to have such a good mama. Um, so happy mother's day. Yeah, Amazing. I, that is such a wonderful question. I'm so glad that we got to talk about our moms and how much we love moms. Cause I think it is a great opportunity. Uh, I'm sorry to switch from that to something as boring as tell me about what's going on soon and where we can find your show. Uh, less emotional of a topic, but we want people to follow elephant rifle and know about your upcoming show. So tell me yeah. where people can find the album, where they can see your release show and uh, how people can connect with you in general. So the best spot is our Bandcamp, which I think is elephantrifle.bandcamp.com. Uh, that's the best place to find all Elephant Rifle merchandise to buy from us directly. Um, if, for those of you here tonight, I've got records and stuff and T-shirts and everything here and a Sharpie to sign stuff if you want. Um, but if you don't want to do that tonight, that's fine too. But the big show is uh, Holland Project on May 20th. And then the next day, we're playing at Shoe Tree Brewing down in in Carson City, which is the brewery that's right next to the Hot Springs. So we're going to go play outside, outdoors, matinee, 2 p.m., outside concert. Should be super fun. And then go soak in the Hot Springs afterward. I'm super excited about those. Then we're doing a tour. I'm not going to remember all the tour dates, but we're doing a whole big tour up to the Midwest. And Memorial Day weekend playing in, uh, in Minneapolis. And then touring on the way back. But yeah, Elephant Rifle Bandcap for all the tour dates and um, um, all the merchandise. We, the new record is Broken Water. Um, it, it was a huge labor of love. I'm super, super proud of it. And it's a, it's a uh, pandemic record for sure. But like a, it's, it's something special, just like all of our mothers. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for Brad for coming on the show. And thank you all in the audience for being here tonight. It's really great to do these live episodes. So give yourselves a round of applause, folks in the crowd. And that's it. Thank you all for listening. And go check out the show on Saturday. And uh, check out Elephant Rifle wherever you find your music. Bam, we're done. Listeners, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the podcast, and a special thanks to my guest, Brad Bynum from Elephant Rifle, and the folks who came to the live event taping. It was great to have some interaction with our audience members. We always do a Q&A, and I am grateful that folks came out to the event. Keep an eye on Instagram for future Renoites Lives. We're also at the beginning of a brand new season of the show, so we have regular episodes every Tuesday the upcoming episode on Tuesday, May 16th, is with Ignacio Baron Viela, who is the president and CEO of the Reno Philharmonic. So another music episode, but obviously in a little bit different genre. Great conversation with him. So check that one out in just a couple days. That's all we've got for you this week. Have a good one. <laughs>